Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Most of the time, the most irrelevant job in Washington is being a member of the House minority. Unlike in the Senate, over in the House, the minority party has few levers at its disposal. Instead of governing, you basically wait around for the public to tire of the party in charge so that you and your colleagues can take over the chamber. But something unusual happened in Washington this week. Suddenly, everyone was talking about the possibility that the House Democrats might actually matter. That Democrats might be the key to unlocking the crisis of Speaker Kevin McCarthy losing control of his conference. To recap, the federal government runs out of money in eight days. The first step to completing the annual spending bills is to pass a short-term extension, a so-called continuing resolution, or CR, to keep the government open while things get sorted out. The CR is usually the easy step in the process. But all week, McCarthy has tried and failed to pass a CR. He also tried to pass the Defense Appropriations Bill. Surely his far-right rebels wouldn't vote against the Pentagon, right? They did, twice. McCarthy has effectively lost his majority. And this is where the Democrats could come in. I'm Ryan Lizza, and this is Playbook Deep Dive. McCarthy's plan A is to keep crafting new CRs to try and appease the holdouts until he finally secures a majority. You may recall this is how he won the speakership back in January. But as they watched the chaos on the House floor this week, a bipartisan group started to push another idea. Republicans should band together with Democrats to pass the CR. One way to do this is with a so-called discharge petition that forces a vote. That remains a distant but still live possibility. But the even more intriguing role Democrats could play is a little further down the line. The GOP holdouts have repeatedly threatened McCarthy with a vote to remove him as Speaker. And this week, Democrats started to think seriously about how they would vote if that comes to pass. They could all just vote against McCarthy and help the rebels trigger a new speaker election. Nobody really knows which Republican would emerge from that process. Maybe McCarthy could eke out another victory the way he did in January. Maybe someone else pops up to replace him. But Democrats could also lend their votes and save McCarthy from that fate. Of course, they would only do this at a very steep price. So is this all just a fever dream of Washingtonians who watch too much West Wing? Or is there some role the Dems could play to bail out the flailing speaker? We went up to the Capitol to ask the woman whose job it is to count votes for the Dems. The number two Democratic leader in the House, Minority Whip Catherine Clark. What's your week been like? <laughs> My week has been chaotic. <laughs> Representative Clark started in local government in Massachusetts about 20 years ago. She landed a seat in Congress, representing an area around Boston back in 2013, when her predecessor, Ed Markey, moved over to the Senate. After Democrats gained the majority in 2018, Nancy Pelosi put Clark on her leadership team. 
Clark was promoted again to assistant speaker in 2021, and today she's one of the four new faces of the House Democratic leadership. I stopped by her office in the Capitol on Thursday, a few hours after McCarthy's latest appropriation gambit failed. We talked about what it would take for her to help the speaker. We discussed her ideology, a bit of a mystery according to some of her colleagues, her leadership style, her mentors, whether she feels bad for McCarthy, and the origins of her scary nickname. I'm told that your nicknames uh, are some variation of <laughs> something an assassin, the silent assassin, the quiet assassin, the velvet assassin. <laughs> you, 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 so, I, I, you know, it was a little chilling to learn that before I came, came in here. You very, You'll never see it coming, right? You, you seem very worry. nice. But, then I, you know, I went to high school in Massachusetts. I know a lot of relatives in Boston. I know, you know, I know it, it could be can, a little rough. I, yes. I, so how did you get that? How did you get the, all the assassin nicknames? I, I have, there is, I, I don't think there are multiple, uh, but. Uh, a variation, right. I don't Which know. one do you like the best? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how this happened, but I, I do think it comes from sometimes people mistake being kind being friendly for not being strong yeah. and not being a fighter. And so I think especially for women. I was going to say, is it a sexist thing for someone to call think, you that? Because, I oh, think, she's so nice. She's, it's I, first like of a all, I have no stereotype. idea who started this, but I do think there is something to that, yeah. that there is sort of a stereotype. Like if it's a guy, it's just assumed that he's going to be an friendly, assassin. If you're friendly, if you're nice, like, do you really have political strength, political right. acumen? Are you strategic while you're doing that? And I think that, you know, part of the key is to keep all those pieces. Yeah. I genuinely like people. I like knowing their stories. I like knowing the challenges in our caucus that my members, like, what's unique about their district? What do they need? What do the people in that district need that may be different from what my district needs, and how can we help move everybody forward? And that sort of genuine interest in people, but also, you know, having lines and being strategic um, and helping us move that agenda forward. Um, I think sometimes people are uneasy with both of those things residing in a woman. One thing when I was talking to some of your members today and saying I was going to do this interview and, you know, I don't know you and, what you know, what what would you ask? And a couple of people said, and I will point out there were people on more on the left than the the, the center. They said, you know, everyone wants to know um, what ideologically uh, where she is. You know, in leadership, you have to like be nice to all the different factions. You can't be associated too much with with one faction or the other. But you remember, uh, maybe you had to give this up uh, in leadership of the CPC. How, what should people take from from you being a CPC member, and how how much do you identify with that wing of the House Caucus? You know, I, that's where my politics are. Yeah, you know, but I also I've, I've frequently speaking of nicknames, pragmatic progressive becomes yeah. another one. Um, but I think that that doesn't have the same ring to it. I have to tell you, <laughs> despite the alliteration, the, the quiet assassin is quiet, better. Uh, silent. I believe is <laughs> si- silent. Yeah, it's worse right. than quiet. Um, so but um, but you velvet know. also comes up too. Uh, velvet. Oh, okay. Um, You're right. The silent assassin is good. I'm gonna we're going with that. <laughs> but um, uh, you know, I've been a member of the Progressive Caucus since I came to Congress yeah. until leadership. Um, Um, But I think that one of the things that got me interested in running for for leadership was working on recruiting candidates 
back in the in the midterms in 18. And those were all moderates. And those were all moderates because yeah. that was your emphasis, right? Is, that's is, is, how yeah. we build a majority and yeah. we get to do the things that we want to do. And without without that coalition that spans from blue dogs to, you know, our most progressive members, we don't get there. Yeah. So, yes, that's the politics of my district. That's my personal. But in a way, I take that as a sense of pride in a sense that or I think that maybe I'm doing my job well in leadership that people are like, we can't quite pin her down because it's my job to understand the Blue Dogs district, the New Dems district, the Progressives district, make sure they all have a voice at the table and that we come to uh, the right answer based on the values and, and the people in our caucus. And that diversity of opinion is a strength. And we build, that's how we build strong majorities. And that's how we get to do great progressive things for this, you know, for this country. And that is how we were able to put together the majority that got all those accomplishments of the 118th. Um, you know, it's, it's a bit of a catchphrase, but Democrats really do deliver. And we do that by having a big tent and it can make it unruly. But when I look across the aisle at this particular point, I'm like, what a, what an accomplishment we had that when it could have gone this direction, we had the right leaders in place and we had the right members who kept their vision on serving their constituents and finding commonality across the aisle with each other when they could, as long as it moved our values forward. And that's really what we're seeing now is a void of, of values, a void of saying this should be driven by those families at home we're worried about, am I still going to make it? The pandemic was a huge shock to our country, to our system, to our economy, to our mental health. And we have to recover. And I admire and applaud the work that the Biden administration is doing to put us on that road of economic recovery. And we know we have more work to do. And so let's get back to that. Let's use that diversity um, to get back to doing great things for the American people. Do you see any chance of McCarthy actually giving up on, I mean, right now his, his strategy is just keep appeasing, appeasing, appeasing the far right with different more right-wing CRs, right? Yeah. Until he can get send something to the, to the Senate. I guess this scenario is the, the, is, all right, he gives up on that strategy because, you know, there's four or five that say they'll never vote for any CR. And, um, he uh, uh, gives a green light to this dis discharge idea. One, could you see that even being in the realm of possibility, or are we just like even talking about this is kind of like fantasy? Well, it's sort of we go back to January and where this speakership began yeah. with 15 rounds and uh, Speaker McCarthy making all sorts of side deals and promises with the extremists, and right. they have an agenda, which is to burn it all down. So nothing about Kevin McCarthy's behavior as speaker yeah. gives me confidence that he is going to turn into the leader that this moment is calling for. Which is doing something bipartisan. 
Exactly. Living up to the deal he made. Now, obviously, Democrats were always going to have a role with getting the actual original deal that was negotiated through the House. But there are are all these conversations about discharge petitions and what happens if McCarthy is the subject of of a vote to end his speakership? What do Democrats do then? So just I want to dig into those latter two specifically, but just more generally, can you lay out sort of where Democrats are and what their role is in the process right now? Yeah, uh, you know, I think that Democrats have been extremely clear on where we are and what we're willing to do to help move the country, the economy, uh, what the American people care about forward. And, you know, just a few months ago, uh, the GOP in the House decided to take the American economy hostage. And instead of putting together a budget, instead of responding to the budget submitted by the president, they put a bill out that would have decimated uh, our veterans, our food and nutrition programs, law enforcement, border security, just about anything that Americans rely on their government to provide and to get by. You're talking about the current CR that's, that's, that they wrote. Well, I'm talking about the bill they passed in April that resulted in, the default. in saying, you know, you better come to the table, President of the United States, or we will allow us to default and take the economy over the cliff. And here is a horrible ransom we're asking for. Got it. Yep. The president did come and Democrats came and we, there was compromise in that deal. There were lots of things in that deal that Democrats didn't like and don't reflect our values, but we knew we had to do it. And we respected the deal that the president made with Speaker McCarthy. And they signed that deal, and 314 of us voted in a almost equal bipartisan fashion to support it. And the ink was barely dry when Kevin McCarthy was back trying to placate the extremists in his conference. And he is just telling the American people what matters is him retaining his speakership, and they don't. And so when people come and say, are Democrats going to help? It is beyond frustrating because we continue to be there. We continue to be the ones who are the adults in the room, who are there to govern, to put the American people's needs first. And so Kevin McCarthy is not asking for our help. He is not um, living up to the deal that he made. Yeah. And what he is saying is none of it matters. He keeps putting in the paper, I just keep dancing. And when when you have a leader whose sole focus has become remaining that leader, then bad things emanate from that. And that's the situation where we are. Okay. So I do want to ask, though, about getting out of this situation. And obviously, Kevin McCarthy isn't coming to you. But in the event, well, two things. One, let's just very specifically talk about this discharge petition to get a CR out of the House. What is your view of uh, the possibility of Democrats uh, working to advance that? And what would the scenario be? Under what scenario would that even 
come up? You know, at this point, it's all in the realm of the hypothetical and yeah. the speculative. Um, we have a discharge petition process. We have other procedural processes that we can take. But what it's going to take are a handful of Republicans to decide that they are going to cut ties with the extremism in their party right. and come back over to getting to work for the American people. The Congressional Progressive Caucus, they thought this was a likely enough uh, issue that they'd have to grapple with that where they were talking about what one of the members there said was a, a power-sharing agreement, which kind of blew my mind that the, <laughs> that, that the caucus, the Democratic caucuses are having ser serious meetings about, hey, we have to have a position about what kind of concessions we would extract from Kevin McCarthy if it's just true that he's lost his majority and uh, he comes hat in hand uh, to Democrats. Um, isn't that, I mean, I'm just, that's kind of a, a rare moment in, in, in the House that people are even discussing that. It, well, we're in a rare moment like, of chaos, yeah. um, of extremism. But you're not ready to sort of, it seems like you're not ready to kind of hint one way or another about even that Democrats would want something from him or what they would want or that we're even headed towards him be, having to have his bacon saved uh, with, with Democratic votes. Listen, we've been here waiting to uh, have Kevin McCarthy ask for our help in governing responsibly. Yeah. I haven't gotten that call. Got it. And so, you know, we have been through this exercise with him. How high is the price going to be when you get, well, if you get that call? You know, it, it, it's sort of my my goal here, and I I think I can speak uh, for our caucus. Our goal is not to punish Kevin McCarthy, to kick Kevin McCarthy out of his speakership. Our goal is to prevent a shutdown yeah. and get to work for the American people. We have already laid that blueprint out. It was negotiated by Kevin McCarthy, so. You know, I, I have to say I have a, a level of frustration with the questions about well, what are Dems willing to do? Well, I think it's We've more like, what would you want? It. <laughs> <laughs> like you're in a position suddenly where you, you could have a crazy amount of leverage for the minority party in the House. I think that's what it is, is so interesting about yeah, uh, and these, that, these conversations. And maybe it's all fantasy. Maybe that doesn't happen. Maybe he figures this out on his own. But that's sort of why I'm, I'm sort of interested in it. Yeah. I mean, I think that we want... We want him to live up to the agreement that he made. We want to get disaster aid out. We want to continue our support for Ukraine. And we want them to end this sham of an impeachment inquiry. You know, I'm a former prosecutor. You don't decide, I want to choose this defendant. I'm going to make up charges. And then I'll go see if I can find any evidence. And if I don't... Then I proceed with the prosecution. I mean, what are we talking about here? Yeah. Um, and so I think those are the questions that we would have. And, you know, but so far, um, you know, it is Marjorie Taylor Greene who's, who's running the show. And that is an extreme place, even for a party that has become completely dependent on the approval and the nod and the tweet from Donald Trump before they make a move. And so we're in a very perilous situation. And 
the the blueprint for success, the blueprint of how to get out of this is right there. And if Kevin McCarthy chooses to take it, to get back to work for the American people, to do the right thing, we're going to be there, uh, you know, to to meet and compromise with him. Um, what will be the signal that that's where we're headed for, to, for, for you? What will be the signal that, okay, he really does need us now, and now these conversations have to get serious? I, I mean... I don't know how much more serious and dire we can get. <laughs> I mean, I think we'll be him picking up the phone. I, I, guess. I guess we have <laughs> ten more days to try and uh, yeah. to try and do this. But yeah. um, you know, the fact that we went home for six weeks with one of the appropriation bills, and now you know they have brought up the defense appropriations bill, which is usually a bipartisan bill, one of the easier ones to get yeah. through the House. Several times, and they can't get it through their own conference. I mean, in the minority, we really are looking at them saying, what? There is no plan. There is no strategy. Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. All right. I want to talk a little bit about you as as a leader and a potential uh, leader in the majority. Do you watching McCarthy up close this year? Do you ever think like, man, it's uh, it's hard to govern? Uh, do you ever have any pangs of sympathy? Like, I could be in one of these top spots in sixteen months, and. I'm sure you don't believe that the Democratic caucus is has the same kind of uh, issues as the as the as the Republican conference, but you know, you guys you have some rambunctious uh, uh, people, and each side learns lessons in, in how to cause trouble from the other. So, do you ever think like, wow, I got to make sure that that kind of chaos does not spread into uh, the Democratic caucus? And just more generally, do you ever watch with any sense of sympathy of like? His struggles to lead, knowing that you one day could be in a, uh, you know, a similar position. Uh, each day that I watch Kevin McCarthy, <laughs> my admiration for Speaker Nancy Pelosi grows. Yeah, because I did get to watch her and what she did with the exact same majority, close. Well, five, the five. He's five. got four, and she has five. She had five. Yeah, but at one point it went down. Oh, considerably. That's true, right. It went down right. to two. Depended on, uh, you, you know, know who's, who as, as members retired, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, we Deaths, had, retirements, yeah. we had some people leave in the middle of, of the term. Yeah. And with that, working with the Biden administration, the record of accomplishment that we did, and it, it really comes down to, we were able to pass the American Rescue Plan infrastructure, the first gun safety bill in 30 years, um, the Chips and Science Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, historic investment in climate change and climate resilience, 
lowering the cost of insulin, increasing access to health care for millions and millions of Americans, with that same majority... It wasn't the, easy, though. I mean, I covered that very closely. It's not some- easy. <laughs> exactly. It's I mean, not easy. Yeah. But you have to lead with values and American people. And we have a boisterous, diverse, uh, you know, family conversations, we'll call them. And they can get tense. And the we have a spectrum of ideologies within the Democratic caucus. But the difference between us and them is that we have shared core values. And we put the American family first. And we believe in democracy we believe in equality, and we believe in creating an economy that works for everyone. And so that is how, like watching how Speaker Pelosi, with the same tight majority, consistently chose to unite us around values and the needs of the American people coming out of a pandemic. Yeah. Um, shows me that that's true leadership and it takes bravery and it takes realizing that you are speaker of the House of Representatives, the people's house. And yes, it is a partisan position, but that the responsibilities are way beyond a Democrat or Republican party. It is about being a leader and governing for the people. You, you've been in politics a while. Um, who was your political mentor? Oh my you could gosh. pick one. <laughs> oh, there, you know, I'm so lucky to have so many. And Speaker Pelosi is definitely at the top of the list. Um, but, you know, one of the, the privileges, not only, uh, in politics, um, but, uh, privilege of a lifetime was getting to work with John Lewis mm. and just watching his incredible, um, his incredible leadership style of one of absolutely knowing where he stands mm. and not being afraid to put his life on the line to ensure that we, that everyone in this country has that power to vote, but also a person who led with incredible love and forgiveness and empathy. And to be both of those things, to be able to hold both of those sides, an absolute fighter with the moral clarity that he had, and also to continue to be an extremely loving man. Mm. Uh, You know, people have described John as a walking sermon. (laughs) And, um, And I think that's apt. So, what a what a privilege to get to serve with him. Did you? I was, what did you learn f- about ex- exercising political power and being a leader from him? That you can do both. That you can lead with love and also be strong. That those two things are not separate. Um, a sign of weakness. That those that that looking for that commonality really hearing and empathizing with people in this country, that that is a source of strength um, that will give you the ultimate political strength. And he also told us um, up until the moment of his passing that you should never give up, never give up. 
And that is what I see in our caucus. That is what I hope to bring to the work here, that we shouldn't ever lose sight, that we are sent here by people of our district to, to be their voice. And when that stops, when that becomes something else, as we're witnessing in the House GOP today, um, bad things happen. And people's cynicism around government grows. And we need to be able, as we are in this part of our history, where we're not exactly sure um, how our democracy is going to turn out. And that these elections, we keep saying each election is the most important election because it's going to be a series of elections until we get away from the the fascist view of Trumpism uh, is putting forward and threatening our democracy with. You know, um, there are some people who come uh, to the House and they have big outside fo- followings uh, through, you know, different me- media chal- uh, channels. I mean, I won't mention any names, but you know the names on, on, on either side. Um, and sometimes they have trouble translating that into power inside uh, – the, the the conference um on a scale of sort of like one to ten you know uh one being like an, an aoc or a matt gates not to compare them but they do have you know, yes please don't i just they, they have <laughs> you know millions of people who yeah. look to them to for for as their you know uh political their uh their social media and they have influence outside and maybe a 10 being um, I don't know, Steny Hoyer, who seemed to never really like love that game, although he, he got pretty well known. Um, wh- where are you on that scale? And like, how do you see uh, the importance of the inside game versus the outside game? Yeah, for me, it is um, all about the inside game. Yeah. It is all about, um, and, and what I mean by that, because that may strike people as as odd, but for for me, it is not about, uh, you know, I I will... I will do television appearances and podcasts um, to talk about the issues that matter and how Democrats are delivering on those. But the goal is not, um, for me, I'd much rather be effective and help our members get to success because that's how our caucus is successful. That's how the country is successful. And so for me, it is about, I would rather work in quiet ways to make sure that we are coming together and meeting this moment because we are still in a moment of great risk to our democracy and how we do in these elections, how we are meeting the moment and rising to the moment for the American people is going to be critical. So, uh, you know, I think that like your constituency is your, your members is, is my, my constituents at home and district as a leader though, as a, as a a leader, it is about, it is about our caucus because that is where I see the American people reflected. You know, that's really where I see their needs being met. And, and, and in helping the caucus be successful means that we are connecting back home. And, you know, we can do so much good. And we have such a privilege to be here in Congress. And it's such a privilege to be in leadership. So let's not waste any time. And let's get back to doing the people's work. 
Thank you very much for doing this. Good talking, good meeting you. Thank you, Ryan. And that's our show. Our producer is Kara Tabor. Our senior producer is Alex Keeney. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Please subscribe to Playbook Deep Dive wherever you get your podcasts. And before you go, be sure to check out our new Politico podcast, Power Play, that just launched on Thursday. If you haven't listened already, here's a little taste of what you might be missing. Want to know what the man who hopes to be Britain's next prime minister thinks about the world? Join me, Anne McElvoy, to hear Labour leader Keir Starmer's views on China, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, and why Barack Obama is his go-to source of advice. It's all in the first episode of Power Play. Unpacking it, I'll be joined by a transatlantic Politico duo, Rosa Prince, editor of London Playbook, and Hal Tuzi, senior foreign affairs correspondent in Washington, D.C. So do join us as we try to make the Atlantic a little less wide for the inaugural episode of Power Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.